Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. The Music Modernization Act has been described by many as the first piece of legislation in decades to offer fair play to musicians. Not only has the MMA found common ground between opposing interests in the music industry, but it has also earned the support of both Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Our guest today is Steve Marks, Chief of Digital Business and General Counsel at the Recording Industry Association of America in Washington, D.C. I had the opportunity to work for him and his wonderful team last summer as a legal intern for the RIAA. It was a remarkable experience, and Steve was an incredible mentor to me and is incredibly knowledgeable about music copyright law. He is here today to discuss the Music Modernization Act and the role it fills in modern copyright law. So thank you, Steve, for being here. The MMA is very long, but can be broken down into three main components, the Musical Works Modernization Act, the Classics Act, and the Allocation for Music Producers Act. And Andrew's going to start with some general questions we have here today. Sure. So before we dive into the real meat of the legislation, uh, let's get a little bit of background about what exactly the MMA, or Music Modernization Act, is and why it is so significant in the current intellectual property climate. So, Steve, could you tell us a little bit about who introduced the bill and why? Sure. Well, um, there are a number of uh, pieces to it, you know, the three pieces that were just described, and they were separate uh, bills that kind of came together in one package. So for the musical work... Uh, Section 115 mechanical license uh, piece of it, Representatives uh, Collins and Jeffries, as well as Senators Hatch, Alexander, Durbin, and Whitehouse were sponsors or co-sponsors of uh, bills in, in both houses on that. And then the Classics Act, which is the other main piece of it, uh, Representatives Issa and Nadler, and then Senators uh, Kennedy and Coons were uh, the, the original sponsors. Over time, there were many who joined these as co-sponsors. In fact, in the Senate, before it was passed, there were more than 80 co-sponsors. And I think that that really is part of the answer as to why this is so significant. Uh, The bill passed 415 to 0 in the House, and it passed unanimously through committee uh, in the Senate, and then eventually... Uh, by unanimous unanimous consent in the Senate. There are, I think, maybe a handful of bills in the history of Congress that have had that kind of success. And in an area that is usually a very controversial one, which is music and copyright law, uh, where there are many, many interests 
not just within the music industry, but others like the digital service providers uh, who are uh, very important to the music ecosystem, uh, to have the kind of consensus among all those interested parties and the, uh, the, the representatives in the House and the senators is uh, quite unique. Let's talk a little bit about the motivations behind the bill. Were there any specific gaps in law or policy that it intended to fill? Yeah, so I think on the two uh, pieces, we could break them down because the motivations were, were different for, for each of those two main pieces. For many years, there has been a recognition among pretty much everybody in the industry that the Section 115 mechanical compulsory license just doesn't work for the marketplace that has evolved uh, in digital. It is a hundred years old, or was before, you know, the the MMA, a hundred-year-old compulsory license that was designed, obviously, for a different time and a different purpose, and uh, in practice required work-by-work or song-by-song licensing, which just imagine how difficult that is instead of having the ability to do a number of uh, compositions, get those licensed at one time. That kind of worked when the industry was based on new releases coming out uh, kind of one by one, uh, where the licenses could be, you know, cleared for, you know, all of the uh, compositions and recordings that were on that album and that was being distributed in physical format. But when you start to move into digital, especially with streaming, you have uh, streaming services that are making available millions of uh, compositions, um, uh, recordings that, that have those compositions. And so a, a work-by-work approach is extraordinarily cumbersome for those businesses to get off the ground. And there has been talk and, frankly, efforts, including by Congress, dating back to 2006, something called CIRA, which was short for the Section 115 Reform Act, that frankly had a lot of the elements that are contained in MMA, but just was not able to gain the, the kind of consensus that was necessary to, to move that forward. But the, the idea was to take this very old system for licensing mechanical rights for compositions and streamlining that into something that is as is in the MMA blanket licensing approach that reduces administrative costs and ensures that more people are getting the rightful royalties that they should have coming. Uh, there were 60 million notices of intent that were filed under the old system, basically saying, hey, we don't know who the owner is, and we don't even, we can't pay them. This solves uh, that problem. And so it is, a, I would say, a very significant advance for not just, you know, the day-to-day licensing, but for the business that is the, the main part of the industry right now. If you just think, one way that I often describe it is if you just think of all of the administrative costs that will no longer be required uh, by moving to 
to a blanket license and, and other aspects of, of the musical work or, or of the Section 115 license in NMA, that's money that could be going to invest in, you know, new and innovative streaming businesses or functionality. It could be part of it could be going to royalties for creators. If you just even if those administrative fees only showed up as one percent on the P and L of of the streaming companies, that's a large amount of money that can be directed toward better and more innovative services for consumers and more royalties for creators. On the classic side, we had a very odd situation where recordings that were made before February 15, 1972, were uh, treated and, and covered by state law, and everything after that was covered by federal law. And this really goes back to the time when recordings did not have federal copyright protection for a very long time, up until that date, February 15th of 1972, uh, and it was only prospectively and not retroactively. And so, again, as you had services that were offering recordings that were both old and new, you had this very odd situation where some were covered by a patchwork of state laws and others were covered under federal law. This resulted in uncertainty, litigation, and ultimately came to a head when, you know, there were a number of cases that were brought first by uh, Flo and Eddie from the, um, the band The Turtles and later by others because some services were saying that under state law, they didn't need to pay for, for those recordings. So you, you had this very odd situation where the same service would be paying for everything after 1972, but nothing before 1972. And so the Classics Act that's part of uh, the, the Music Modernization Act addresses that problem by essentially bringing the pre-72 recordings into federal law. And we can discuss a little bit later about how it does so, but that was the, the motivation, was to address that anomaly and the resulting uncertainty and litigation as a result of it. One more quick point to touch on before we dive into the body of the text. Um, I'm, we're still fascinated by the amount of support that this bill received in Congress, especially given the current political climate. So could you talk a little about, about uh, any compromises that had to be made along the way, any negotiations? Um, we hear or understand that there was some pushback from some very specific industry entities that had to be overcome during that process? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, you know, from the time that the legislation, both classics and the musical works part of, of MMA, got going in Congress about a year ago, let's say, there were a lot of issues that needed to be resolved among stakeholders, among members of Congress who felt very strongly about certain issues, and uh, there were sometimes very lengthy discussions about how to resolve those and compromises ultimately reached. That's not surprising. It's very common that that's the case with legislation, especially legislation like this. It's very difficult to move uh, legislation 
of any kind through Congress where there is not uh, enough consensus around it, and that is because, especially in the Senate, very few bills reach the floor for a vote, and this bill was not one that was destined for a floor vote, like a, you know, a, a, the big budget bills or a Senate confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee or things like that. And it therefore required what's called unanimous consent in the Senate, uh, which means that even one senator could potentially hold up a bill, even if all 99 uh, others agree that it should become law. And so even if there were a handful, as there were, of, of senators that expressed concern about certain provisions, they had to be worked through to their satisfaction. And so there were a number of compromises along the way. I would, I would say one notable one, for example, for Classics Act was that Senator Wyden wanted to have some provisions for, for non-commercial uses of pre-72 works, and the, the senators actually negotiated that. Senator Coons and, and others negotiated with Senator Wyden on that, taking into account what the, the industry stakeholders thought about the various issues. You know, that, that ultimately got resolved and is, you know, is part of the bill. That's, That's wonderful. I mean, since we're on the topic of negotiations and trying to satisfy all the different parties here, uh, Sirius XM made some efforts to stall the bill to the point where the RIAA President Mitch Glazier released a statement commenting on their, their role in this and their behavior leading up to its final success. And I think part of the success of this bill is the RIAs of trying to make certain concessions and make this work out and appease these different parties. So what exactly did SiriusXM object to and how were they eventually brought on board? So Sirius expressed concerns about a number of provisions. Uh, it was sometimes uh, candidly difficult to understand which provisions they were uh, concerned about, and it changed a little bit over time, which at times was frustrating because, you know, all of the interested parties would feel as though we had a resolution on the issue of concern, only to have something come up. But you have to understand that Sirius was one of the companies that had to be sued over the pre-72 royalties. Sirius took the position that they didn't have to pay for the use of pre-72 recordings, notwithstanding that, uh, as, as many uh, people know who have Sirius, they've got a a 50s channel and a 60s channel and, you know, a 70s channel that obviously has some pre-72 and, you know, classic vinyl and all kinds of stations that use pre-72 recordings. And it's, it's a very important part of their service, of the music that they offer. But they took the position that there was no state law established that required them to pay for those performances. And that resulted in litigation. It ultimately resulted in two uh, settlements, one settlement with the major recording companies and ABCO, which is an independent recording company, for $210 million. That was back in 2015. And uh, another settlement uh, in a class action representing the, the, the remaining 
independent labels and artists who uh, were, were uh, owned or were creators on, on pre-72 recordings. And so they kind of brought that same perspective to the negotiations, and I, I think it's fair to say did not want to have the law changed where it was so explicit that payment for pre-72 recordings was uh, required. They also, one of the other things that the bill does is to, for all the statutory licenses for music that did not have a governing rate standard that required the Copyright Royalty Board, which sets rates for those compulsory licenses, and this, this applies both to the mechanical compulsory license and what Sirius was paying for the use of its music for the recordings. There was an old rate standard that was not a marketplace rate standard, and part of the bill changed that to ensure that, like the other, for example, 3,000 services that were paying according to marketplace rate standards, Sirius would be as well. And uh, Sirius was objecting to moving from the non-market rate standard to a market rate standard. Late in the in the bill uh, or, or in the discussions uh, before uh, the Senate ultimately passed, there, they were expressing concerns that artists may not receive 50% of the monies from uh, settlements or, or licenses going forward, uh, notwithstanding that the bill actually provided that any licenses going forward for statutory services would be split 50-50. So there were... There were just a number of issues that were were addressed ultimately, and at the at the end of the day, the the very last compromise was that on the rate standard issue, Sirius requested that there be a transition period for that, so that the new rate standard didn't kick in right away, and there was an agreement that they would get an additional five years, which is the the length of the statutory license term before that kicked in, and there was an agreement that the rate that the CRB had just found as the appropriate rate for SiriusXM, which is 15.5% of revenues, would, would cover that 10-year period. And so with that, we were able to move past the, the concerns and the objections that Sirius had. Along the way, there were some very public expressions of frustration uh, by artists, songwriters, labels, and others in the music community that notwithstanding the consensus that existed across the entire industry, Sirius was potentially gumming up the works for some very important advancements. You mentioned the frustration amongst artists, which is completely understandable, but that actually... Uh brings a question to mind about how this this bill had all all the support from artists across the nation. And I, I guess that strikes me because they were heavily involved in, in pushing a bill like this to become a reality. So I guess that goes to show how how tough the situation was for artists to actually be you know pushing new legislation. Um, is there any I guess backstory to that. How how do artists 
get involved in a bill like this. Surely they had to understand how comprehensive this was. They had to understand the details behind the scenes, how involved were the artists in making this a reality? Well, they were very involved. Uh, this, uh, you know, there have been a number of op-eds written, including by Mitch, uh, afterward, talking about how this is really a dawn of a new day, frankly, for the industry, because, you know, in the past, there was either a lack of engagement or the, the disagreements between the various constituencies in the music industry, whether it be artists or writers or publishers or labels, that didn't enable moving forward with legislation like this. It's one reason why back in 2006, the, the CIRA legislation that I mentioned earlier just couldn't move forward. Uh, this time, there was not only engagement, uh, artists in particular were engaged through SAG-AFTRA, through uh, the American Federation for Musicians, as well as a number of very important artist representatives that are, uh, you know, looked to and viewed as important voices on these issues. And I think everybody, they and everybody recognized that on, you know, the two issues that we've, we've talked about so far, on pre-72, there's just no reason why artists who are older and frankly more vulnerable, who some of whom are are still touring just to be able to get uh, money from the, the performances that weren't being paid uh, by services like Sirius, that this was so obvious a problem that should be fixed that there, there just wasn't anybody who said, no, we shouldn't be paying older artists to have not only created iconic recordings, but have paved the way and provided artists later for, you know, to, to stand on their shoulders in terms of not just professionally, but, but the music that was created. And so that issue, I think, was a rallying cry for artists both post-72 and pre-72. And on the, on the musical works, the, the mechanical licensing uh, piece of it, Everybody also, I think, recognized that you now have a business that is basically 80% digital, over 70% streaming. Mm -hmm. And if we're to make the most of that streaming marketplace, you have to have a system that works operationally for both the digital music services and the creators. And nobody thought that the 100-year-old mechanical license system that existed before was working well. And everybody agreed it needed to be fixed. And thankfully, you know, the compromises were were made and people didn't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And the result was, uh, you know, a, a comprehensive changes for uh, licensing that had the support of the entire industry. There were bills there were bills introduced, you know, uh before the MMA process got started last year in previous congresses, you know, as well. And then I've already mentioned the going back to two thousand six with CIRA. So 
you know, these, these issues have been the focus of Congress and everybody in the industry for a long time. And it's, uh, it, it's remarkable to see it come together when so few things are, are passed, you know, in a bipartisan way today. So I think everybody in the industry is very appreciative and thankful for the efforts of everybody on the Hill uh, in the Senate and, and the House who made this happen. Absolutely. I mean, it's been phenomenal work, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud, and I haven't even been there in the industry like you have. And I, I just want to mention that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been working on this side of what is now a portion of this bill since 2001, correct? Yeah, I, you know, when... <laughs> When, when streaming first started, there was this – one of the big issues was, well, does streaming require a mechanical because it's really a performance for the most part? You're usually listening. And publishers and songwriters felt strongly that their mechanical rights were part of what was being offered, and they, they, they were implicated and needed to be uh, licensed. And – there was a tremendous amount of argument and uncertainty around this. And in 2001, we were able to reach an agreement, RAAA, with the publishers represented by the National Music Publishers Association uh, to recognize that a mechanical right existed in on-demand streaming, essentially, and would be licensed as part of the then-existing 115 uh, mechanical license, and then RAAA and NMPA negotiated the, the first rates that publishers and songwriters would be paid uh, in 2006. And so these these issues have been percolating for a long time, and this is a very important step in kind of cleaning up the old licensing system that, as I said, didn't, didn't work very well for, for the new streaming marketplace. Thank you for such an amazing backstory and, and explaining the history because I think a lot of people don't know about what led up to all of this and how phenomenal this actually is. If they haven't been closely following the history until now, I mean, it's, it really is a remarkable transition and a, and a remarkable time for music. Uh, I do have one last question regarding the Classics Act, and then I'm going to let Andrew continue through to the Musical Works Modernization Act. Sound Exchange has a huge part here now. Um, the act requires the distribution of payments to artists through a platform called Sound Exchange. So, what is Sound Exchange exactly, and what role does it serve specifically? Sure. Sound Exchange is the organization that collects and distributes uh, mainly the monies for the Section 114 compulsory license for recording. So this is all uh, satellite radio, online radio, uh, and similar uh, what we call non-interactive services that are eligible for that compulsory license, which uh, was created in 1995 and then amended in 1998. And what happened was when it was created in 1995, the, uh, the 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 new rights were given, but there really was no nothing in the legislation that talked about how the money would be paid and uh, distributed. And the services, the first services that were covered by that 1995 law, actually came to the RAAA and said, 
you know, you, you know a lot more about your membership and, you know, artists and who to pay and how to pay them. Will you take on the role of collecting and distributing the royalties that, that we pay? And we agreed to do that and created a, a, a unit within the organization. And then we eventually spun that off as an independent uh, organization uh, called Sound Exchange, which had a, a board that was equally split between artist representatives and label representatives and has existed since 2003. And uh, Sound Exchange has, you know, those royalties have grown from something very small back in the late 90s to uh, something that approaches almost a billion dollars a year for the industry now. So that is Sound Exchange's, you know, primary role. And one of the things that Sound Exchange do- does, which which is pursuant to the the law, is the monies that come in are split 50-50. So 50% goes to the labels or whoever the owner is of the recording, and then uh, 50% goes to the artist. Actually, 45% goes to the featured artist, and then uh, 5% split equally goes to the two uh, unions, SAG-AFTRA and AFM. So what... Sound Exchange does for pre-72, or post-72 today, rather, will do for pre-72 tomorrow under this bill, collect those monies and distribute them 50-50. That's wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that. All right. So moving on to the next section of the Act, um, I want to clarify a couple uh, terms of art that we've used uh, so far. So you've talked about mechanical royalties as opposed to um, other types of rights that artists might have. Can you just clarify exactly what that is and why it was such a problem given the modern technology trends in the industry? Sure. In music, there are two different copyrights. One in the composition, which if you saw it on a written piece of page, would be the notes and the lyrics. And uh, the other is the sound recording, which is the you know artist rendition that you, you know, purchase and, and hear on streaming services or the radio uh, and includes the composition. Both the composition and the recording have rights of uh, reproduction and public performance, among others, and distribution. On the composition side, reproduction rights for the sale uh, of music to the public is licensed through the mechanical compulsory license that's found in Section 115 of the Copyright Act. That dates back to 1909. Uh, I won't go through the history of why it happened in 1909, but it's existed since 1909. And as I was saying earlier, it, it, it is a work, it was a work by work license. So for each composition, you had to get a license for use in, you know, say a vinyl record or a CD or whatever it might be. And you had to actually get a separate license for each configuration. So if you were releasing something on vinyl and CD and digital download and a streaming service, you'd need four different licenses for the same composition uh, that's used in the one recording. So this Section 115 uh, Mechanical Compulsory License is the license that had become just a square peg in a round hole when streaming services came uh, came into being. 
uh, and that was really the impetus for the, you know, the, the reform that's part of uh, the, the MMA. Another point, uh, you've talked a little bit about non-interactive and interactive streaming services. Can you touch on what the difference between those are and why it's important that we distinguish between them? So the, these terms originally came about in the 1995 legislation that granted sound recordings a performance right for the very first time. Um, an aside, but an important aside, is that under federal law in 1972, when recordings did get rights, they only had reproduction and distribution rights. They did not have performance rights. And so radio, terrestrial radio, for example, which, you know, for decades was and um, continues to be one of the biggest performers of recordings, terrestrial radio has never paid the artists and the label for the use of the recording. They do pay the composition owners, the writer and the publisher, but not the not the artist and the and the label. So when you're listening on a, 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 your AM/FM station and you know a song is played, the artist is not getting paid, but the writer is getting paid. So in 1995, there was um, uh, Congress enacted the Digital Performance Rights and Sound Recordings Act, which gave a right uh, for digital transmission. So terrestrial radio was still exempt. But for digital transmissions, there was a new right. And at the time, the, the focus of Congress was on what they called, uh, and you can see this if you go back and look at the report language, the celestial jukebox. And the idea there was you would be able to, as a consumer, listen on demand to any song ever recorded that you wanted, you know, through a, a service. That was very similar, by the way, um, it was, uh, this idea was essentially what the streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music are today. And so, you know, at the time in 95, there was an exclusive right granted for those kinds of services. At the same time, there were some satellite and cable uh, television music services that existed. So these were services that if you you know, kind of went to the high numbers on your cable service or, you know, on direct TV, you would, you would find, you know, 30 channels of all kinds of different genres of music. Those services said, well, wait a minute, we're not, we're not really like this on-demand celestial jukebox kind of thing. We're just more like radio, so we're happy to pay, but we think we should be paying, you know, in a different way. And, uh, as a result, there was a, a statutory license created for those services. And the, the way that they were distinguished from the other services was, to, was through a definition of interactive, where interactive services, which is like an on-demand service, there was an exclusive right and a license that needed to be taken directly from the, the owner of the recording, and for non-interactive services that were kind of radio-like services, they would be licensed on a blanket basis through this compulsory license, which is the license that I was just uh, referring to when I was talking about sound exchange and, and what they do. So that's the genesis of those terms. Now, what happened was when there was this debate about whether on the composition side there was a mechanical uh, right implicated by streaming services, 
that the publishers and writers who were claiming that right limited their request to interactive services because they were looking at it as those on-demand interactive services being a substitute for traditional sales. I mean, we've seen that in the market now, as I was just describing. You've got 70 – I think that the, the sales market right now, the physical market, the sales market is only 10%, and then the digital uh, piece is about, uh, you know, another 10 or 15%, I think. So basically – We've seen that happen where sales have given way to on-demand streaming services. So they kind of drew that line when uh, laying down a marker for their rights, their mechanical rights. And the theory was, as I said, one was substitutional for sales. Mechanical rights are about sales, and others are more about performances, and those would be licensed through the ASCAP BMI as, a, as, a, as just a performance. And so that's kind of the genesis uh, for the distinction. It's candidly um, a little odd in the sense when you think about the, the actual uh, technology and the rights implicated by it. If you're listening to, you know, a playlist that, is put together by the service, and it's being streamed to you. Uh, that's no different than the stream that's coming if you ask for a specific recording or a specific album. However, uh, the the function of those and how they fit within the market for music are different. And so, it was based. The distinction was based more on the market and uh, less on the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the technicalities of the delivery of the stream. Very interesting. Can we talk next a little bit about um, the impact that the MMA will have on the artists whose works are implicated by it? Um, and how did the crafting of this legislation manage to reconcile those interests with those of their publishers and the streaming services that actually provide their work to consumers? You're right that there were three main, you know, constituencies that were a part of the discussions on the, the uh, musical work part of MMA, songwriters, music publishers, and the digital music services. And as I said before, they all agreed, you know, the system is broken, and then the question is, okay, what do you fix it with? And uh, the fix was to have a new mechanical licensing collective created, that would collect and distribute mechanical royalties. And the digital music services would be able to have a blanket license instead of the individual uh, licenses that we, the work by work licenses. And uh, they, as a result, were uh, willing to help pay and foot the bill for the creation of the mechanical licensing collective. That's good for uh, songwriters and publishers because uh, their the administrative fees many of the administrative fees that they had on their side that they had been paying will now be covered by the services and they will also be getting they 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 won't have royalties held up in this never never land of uh, the notices of intent and and services not being able to find owners because 
the services are basically sending all the money and reports of what songs they used over to the Mechanical Licensing Collective, and then that money is distributed to the publishers and the songwriters. And the, the publishers and the songwriters worked out among themselves how the uh, governance and representation on that new Mechanical Licensing Collective uh, would work. And songwriters, for the first time, will have a very integral role in the royalty collection and distribution of mechanical royalties. So they, they won't merely be on the receiving end of getting the royalties from whoever is paying them. They're going to be part of the governance uh, of the uh, Mechanical Licensing Collective. And there was, you know, some back and forth on how many seats they would have and how committees would be formed and things like that. But ultimately all those, those issues were worked out. One final question on this. Uh, we were wondering specifically about independent songwriters and artists, those who may not be represented by a label or have deals with publishers already. Uh, who's going to look out for them and make sure that they aren't left out in the cold in all of this? Well, the Mechanical Licensing Collective is required uh, to take the information that the digital music providers provide them on, uh, the, you know, the reports of use, what, what they're using, what compositions. They are to gather information from other sources, and they are to, uh, they're actually going to create a database. It's actually something we haven't talked about that's extremely important uh, part of this. In addition to collecting and distributing the royalties, they're going to create an authoritative database of who owns the compositions uh, for uh, the mechanical rights, at least, you know, who, who the, the proper owners are for, to receive royalties from that. That's going to actually be made public for the first time. There will be a source of authoritative composition data that's, that's publicly available. The data issue generally for the industry uh, is a very, very big issue and has been for some time over the, over the recent years because especially on the, on the composition side, it's been very difficult to identify who all the owners are. So, for example, one of the problems in the old system when you went to license is that there might be 10 different owners or co-owners uh, of the composition because you, you know, you may have had 10 different people contributing to, uh, writing the song or the lyrics or, you know, the, the, how it was composed in the studio. And those owners sometimes do not figure out among themselves in a timely way how much each person owns. And so if you were a digital music service, or a label that was, you know, licensing directly uh, uh, for mechanical rights, you didn't really know how much to pay each one. Some might own 20%, some might only own 2%. Um, but until you knew that information, you really couldn't distribute the royalties. So the Mechanical Licensing Collective is going to take 100% of the royalties and then uh, determine in an authoritative way what what piece of it goes to which person for each composition. And so as part of that process, whether you're signed to a large publisher or unsigned as a songwriter, you will have an opportunity and the Mechanical Licensing Collective will be 
uh, trying to determine who everybody is, and, and uh, that money should be flowing regardless of whether you're a, a, a big songwriter or somebody that just owns a small piece of the composition. That's great, especially with all the collaboration going on in the music industry. This, this I think, will make things easier for artists and yeah, everyone absolutely. in general. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, <laughs> for that explanation. Um, that, that's something that I wasn't really quite clear on, and I, I am now. What we can do is I think we'll end on this last question under the Allocation for Music Producers Act. Uh, so what is the AMP Act, and what role does it fill? So the AMP Act requires Sound Exchange to receive um, letters of direction from a recording artist who may have an agreement to give part of his or her royalties to a producer that they've worked with uh, in creating the recording. So if I'm an artist, I may say, I'm going to give 5% of whatever's coming to me to you, producer, because you're playing a very important role in the creation of this recording. And in order to ensure that that 5% gets to that producer for the monies, at least, that are being collected and distributed by SoundExchange, SoundExchange would, would, would receive something called a letter of direction that basically says, you know, I'm an artist, you should be paying this songwriter 5% of my royalties and, and pay them directly. And so SoundExchange, upon getting that letter, will be distributing the money directly to the producer instead of sending it to the artist for the artist to then send to the producer. Uh, and there is an agreed-upon allocation of 2% of the royalties uh, to be paid to producers that were involved in, in that way. Right. So it just expedites that process a little bit. Exactly. Okay. That's great. And a lot more organized, too. This will, this will make uh, teaching copyright classes a little bit more easier, too, I hope, <laughs> because there was a lot of moving pieces before, and this is actually a, a much clearer picture. And I, and I, I hope that, I, I, guess, I mean, I, I would say I hope, but I, I can foresee that the music industry is going to thrive on this. So um, it, we're, we're beyond hope, and we're actually seeing beautiful horizons here. So I commend you and everyone in the music industry for making those efforts. And thank you for being here today and lending us your time. I, I appreciate it, Steve. My thank pleasure. You. Happy happy to do it. And thank you for having me.